0: In the Christian religion, there are two questions above all others which are difficult. The first concerns the unity of the three persons in the one essence in the Trinity. The other concerns the union of the two natures in the one person in the Incarnation. Francis Turretin. Francis Turton was a Protestant reformer who wrote a massive three-volume systematic theology. I have it. It's amazing. You should come in and skim through it one of these days. In fact, it remains one of the most widely used resources from all of the Reformation. And it's one of those systematic theologies, those three books, that has just about any answer to any question you can ask about Christianity. It's deep, lengthy, lengthy, and academic. And Turretin is still considered by all to be one of the greatest scholars in all of Reformation history. And yet here he is in this quote that I read, which comes from that massive theology set that has answers to all kinds of questions. And here is this great thinker admitting without hesitation that what we have been studying for the last four weeks is one of the Very hard questions of Christianity to answer. One of two. It is one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith. In other words, even Francis Turretin himself, were he with us today, would never dream that he could completely explain the incarnation, exhausting all of our questions and providing for us a full comprehension of Christ's hypostatic union. He affirms, as do all Christian theologians that along with the trinity, the unity of Christ's natures really is a true mystery. It's not a contradiction, but it has a depth of understanding that our minds cannot fully plumb. Now, I open this way because over the last four weeks, we have taken some really big theological bites. And in the process, we have talked a lot about mystery. Almost every week I've mentioned this is a mystery, this is somewhat beyond us, this is beyond us. Now, we use the word mystery differently than the way the Bible does. Uh, In Scripture, the word mystery refers to a theological truth that was hidden in the Old Testament and then revealed in the New Testament. So ironically, a mystery according to the Bible is something we know very, very well. It's something that God has given us insight into that was at one time a mystery. When we use the word mystery today, when I say, well, that's kind of a mystery, it's kind of a mystery, what we are meaning is that theological mysteries are things that are just metaphysically a little bit too beyond our ability to totally comprehend. So uh, this is important to know, a mystery is not a contradiction that cannot be resolved. Sometimes people will use it in that way, they just believe two contradictory things, and then when you hold them to it, they just say, well, it's a mystery. Uh, No, contradictions are not mysteries, they're contradictions. A mystery is not a contradiction. Rather, it's just one of the secret things that Deuteronomy 29.29 says belongs to the Lord. There are some things which have either not been revealed at all, or they haven't been revealed with enough clarity for us to pretend like we fully grasp them. Now, the Bible does reveal a whole lot about the Incarnation. We are able to know many incredible and holy truths about who Jesus is, We have a great understanding of the Incarnation, but it's a spiritual, metaphysical reality that is so sophisticated that a full and complete comprehension of it is just something God does not expect us to have. And so I say all this because I hope that I have not discouraged your faith over the last four weeks by my constant appeals to mystery. Because I understand sometimes if we just continuously chalk everything up to mystery, it can make the Christian faith look unintelligible. It makes Christians look like we believe unbelievable things, maybe even contradictory things. But I assure you, this is not the case. There just are mysteries, both in the material and immaterial worlds, realms, if you will. And the vast majority of times that we come together and we open up God's Word, we are not, uh, throughout the year, every Sunday, speaking of these deep, unattainable mysteries. It's not like every single Sunday we come together, I'm always saying, that's a mystery, that's a mystery, that's a mystery. God has given a ton of clear revelation in this huge Bible that he has given to us. But as Francis Turton remarked, the incarnation is one of Christianity's deepest truths. Therefore, we can expect some talk of mystery every Christmas season. But because we have dealt with these deep, mysterious truths of the last month, digging down as deep into the incarnation as we possibly can until we hit mystery... I think it would be helpful to spend our final Lord's Day of the year to summarize these things we've been studying and try to put them into simple terms. So consider this a review and summary of our 2021 Advent Sermon Series explaining the creed of Chalcedon. To begin a review, I want to briefly mention some of the amazing vocabulary words that you have learned over the last four weeks. For example, you learned the word hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is the doctrine that Christ is one person with two natures. Or if you want it to be fancy and impress your friends at Christmas parties, he is one hypostasis. He is one subsistence with two natures. And that is where the word hypostatic union comes. One hypostasis with two substances. In other words, in layman's language, he is one person with two natures. You also learned a really important theological term, consubstantial. This means to be with substance or of the same substance. It means that a nature is shared. So when we say that the Son is consubstantial with God, we mean that He has the same divine nature that God has. He shares the essence. And it means the same thing when we turn around and say the Son is consubstantial with man. He is, to put it in layman's terms, he is made of the same stuff as us. He has the same human substance, the same human nature. He is consubstantial with God. He is consubstantial with man. But perhaps my favorite theological term we learned this Advent, and probably the most difficult of all that we studied, was the term eternal generation. Eternal generation describes how Jesus does come forth from the Father, The Father does generate him, yet this generation has no beginning or end. It's eternal. Eternal generation helps us to understand why the Son of God is called Son, God's only begotten Son. Because to be begotten means to come forth or to proceed from. And so the conundrum sounds like this. How can Jesus proceed from or come from the Father if he is not created? And if He doesn't come forth from the Father, then why is He called the Son of the Father? Eternal generation helps us to untie that knot. That He does come forth from the Father, but He is not created. Begotten, not created. Alongside of our vocabulary words, we studied some really, really important Christological heresies. We had a very brief but crucial introduction to some of the most important points in all of church history. What we really saw is we saw how Christian theology developed by refuting these errors that sprung up. And that's what we call a Christological heresy. It's an error about who Jesus is. We learned, for example, of the heresy of Arianism. Arianism teaches that Christ is a created being, that he is God, he's a God in some sense, he has divine powers in some sense, but he is not entirely equal as God the Father who created him. But we saw that the Bible refutes this error. The Bible teaches that Jesus is begotten, but he is not created. He is eternally God. The Bible is also very clear that Jesus is of the same nature, or the same substance as his father. They are not separate gods, but they share the same substance. And this is why the creed says that the son is, quote, consubstantial with the father according to Godhead. The creed says that he is, quote, begotten before all ages of the father according to the Godhead. It also says other things elsewhere, like how the Son is, quote, perfect in Godhead, truly God, and refers to him as God the Word. We also learned about the ancient heresy, Apollinarianism. This is the heresy that believes Jesus was a divine spirit who filled a physical body. So it denies that he had a real and true human nature. It says that he had a human body, but he was not a human being. But we learn from Scripture that Christ did not merely step inside of a body. He actually partook of true, full, complete human nature. And this is why the Creed states that he is, quote, perfect in manhood, which means that he is, quote, truly man of a reasonable soul and body. The Creed confesses that he did not only have a body but a human nature. He had a human, rational soul. In the same way that he has the same nature as God the Father, Christ has the same nature as us. That's why the creed affirms he is, quote, consubstantial with us according to the manhood in all things like unto us without sin. Every part of your human nature is something Christ has. The only exception was sin. He has no sin. We also learned, uh, the third heresy we looked at was the heresy of Nestorianism. The Nestorians, trying to keep the natures of Christ distinct, went too far in that effort and they ended up speaking about Christ as if he was two different people. They ended up talking about like there's a divine Christ and then there's a human Christ. So they essentially divided the personhood of Christ and they made Jesus two people. But the scriptures refute this notion teaching that Christ is not divided in his personhood, only in his natures. He is one person. And this is why the creed so often says things like one and the same son Our Lord Jesus Christ. And again it says he is one in the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten. And that his natures are united, quote, indivisibly and inseparably. And they concur, quote, in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one in the same Son and only begotten. The last heresy that we, we did one heresy every week. One of the, the fourth one we looked at, was the heresy concerning Eutychianism. The Eutychians saw the error of Nestorius. They saw that Nestorius is essentially dividing Christ up here. And this is wrong. Christ is one. He is unified. And, but the Nestorians, in their attempt to unify what the, or forgive me, what the Nestorians divided, the Eutychians tried to unify it, but they went a little too far in the other direction. And they smooshed Christ together a little bit too much. And so what Eutychianism does is it denies that Christ has two natures. Nestorianism is one person, or two people, two natures. Eutychianism is one person, one nature. And so what they did is they basically blended, or they confused, or they mixed together a divine and a human nature. They blended it in a blender and created this new nature that Christ had. And the creed that we looked at goes out of its way, not just to refute the Nestorians, but to refute the Eutychians as well. And that's why the creed says that Christ is, quote, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly and unchangeably, and that the distinction of natures are by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature is preserved. So you see the way the creed refutes Arius by calling Jesus fully God. It refutes Apollinarius by calling Jesus fully man. It refutes the Nestorians by saying Christ is one, one Lord, one and the same Lord, not divided. And it refutes the Eutychians by saying he has two natures which are distinct in their union. But that's enough review of the deep stuff. Let's get to the text and let's try to summarize in simple terms what we've spent the last four weeks looking at. Every week we learned one new thing. So it was basically a sermon series, a month-long sermon series with four points. I'm going to condense that into three points. So these are the three points that I think sufficiently summarize the last four weeks. Three points that summarize the last four weeks. If someone were to ask you what you learned this year, my hope is you might be able to say something like these three points. The first one is that Jesus is one person with two natures. And as you can expect, things are going to get a little redundant today, but that's the point of review is say things you've said before. So we're going to look at the same text we looked at, and we're going to say some of the same things, but my hope is that this will just be a little bit more simplified and not as complicated. So if you will, turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1 so that we can be reminded that Jesus is one person, yet he has two natures. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning at the beginning. He is one person with two natures. Let's read the first four verses as we have done multiple times already in this series. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 is a crucial witness in all of the New Testament to the identity of who Jesus is. It's it's, it's hard to understate how, how crucial Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2 are. how we understand who Jesus is and as we read in these first four verses the text presents Christ being at the same time both God and man the son is clearly presented as a divine person in this text right the text says things that he created and upholds the universe who else does that but God It is only God who creates all things and sovereignly and powerfully upholds all things. And Christ is the one who is said to have made all things and upholds all things. He radiates the glory of God, the same glory that in the Old Testament God says, I share with no one, he shares with Christ. Because Christ is not a separate being, like the Arians said. He is of the same substance, same being, so it's not a contradiction. Christ shares the Father's glory and he radiates that. In other words, the same glory, the divine glory that the Father has, Christ has that in the exact amount. He radiates the glory of God and the text even goes so far to explicitly say that the son's nature is the exact same nature as God's he has the he is the exact imprint of his nature so the son is given a divine nature he's given a divine glory and he's given divine powers the son is clearly fully and perfectly God But notice what the text also says about the same son, not a different son, not a different person. The same son is also described in this text. The one who made and sustains all things is also the one who, verse 3 says, made purification for sins. What does that mean? It means he died. The eternal God who creates and makes all things died. And you know what death belongs to? Death belongs to mortal men. Gods don't die, men die. So Christ here is presented as a mortal man. He is also said in this text to have been the one who inherits the world, which implies he didn't own it. So this text says that he is the maker of the world, the creator of the world, yet at some point in time he had to inherit the world. The text even continues, not only is he the one who had to inherit the world, but he, the text says explicitly that he was made lower than the angels. God's not lower than the angels, but the Son was made lower than the angels so that he could be exalted above them in time and receive a name above theirs. So we see that this text simultaneously, at the same time, that it clearly refers to Jesus as being fully God, attributes attributes to him that are only consistent with someone who is what? A man. A man. This text indicates that Jesus, the one and the same son, is both God and man. And it's important to remember that the text, again, only provides us with one son. We don't have two sons in this text, a divine son and a human son. We have one son. And that is why this text so thoroughly proves the hypostatic union. It refutes Arianism because it proves that Jesus is fully and completely God. But it refutes Nestorianism by proving there is only one son, There's not a divine son and a human son. Arius was wrong and Nestorius was wrong. Jesus is fully God and he has two natures. Now, so that's our first point. What did we learn over Advent? That Christ is one person with two natures. And if someone wants you to prove that, you go to Hebrews 1. We've got one son here who is both God and man. One person, two natures. Now, our next two points focus in on those natures. Right? So we've established he's one person with two natures, but the next thing we need to establish is that he is truly man. That this, this, yeah, so you could say, yeah, Jesus has a human nature, but what does that mean? Is it a partial human nature? Is it just a lookalike? What, is, what does that mean? So our second point, we establish first that Jesus is one person, two natures, and then we establish that that human nature is truly man. Jesus is truly, fully, completely, whatever word you want to use there, he is truly man. Stay in Hebrews and just go to the next chapter. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. This was another very important text to us this year. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things He is able to help those who are being tempted. This text, specifically verses 14, 17, and 18, are extremely clear in proving that the, the human nature that Christ partook of was perfectly, fully human. It was not partially human, quasi-human, or just looked like humanity. He was a true human just as you and I are. And so Apollinarius and Eutychus are refuted by this text. We are told in this text that he had to be made like us in every respect. He had to have more than a body, but he had to have a soul. And that soul had to, according to verse 18, be capable of what? Experiencing temptation. The book of James tells us, do not accuse God the Father of tempting you. For God does not tempt, nor can he be tempted. So if Jesus is only God and he's not man, he cannot be tempted. And if he cannot be tempted, he cannot be our high priest, our mediator. He had to take on not just a human body, but a human nature, which is capable of temptation, in order for him to truly be our mediator and say, I know what it is to be human. When we go to Jesus, when we cry out to the Lord, when we fall on our knees and we cry out to Jesus, Jesus doesn't just say, hey, I used to look like you. He says, I know exactly what what you're going through exactly i too have been discouraged and tempted because he had a true human nature he was like us in every respect and that's the only way he could be our mediator jesus is truly a man fully man completely man but That is not in contradiction with our third point, that Jesus is simultaneously truly and fully God. I know we've kind of already established that in Hebrews 1, but let's look at it again. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, and the reason I'm having you turn here is primarily for brevity's sake. Because when we in the sermon series sought us to prove that Jesus was fully God... We specifically looked at this term, Son of God. How He is begotten of the Father. How He is from the Father. He is the Son of God. And the key text for that is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. But for brevity's sake, we're not going to read that. But I would just encourage you, if you're uh, sad that Christmas is over and you want to extend Christmas joy, you should go home tonight and you should read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Potentially, potentially, the most profound, glorious revelation we have in all the New Testament. It's it's just incredible. And that is the text that helps us and clarifies for us that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is fully God, even though he is the Son of God. But for brevity's sake, I want us to look at John chapter 5, verse 18. Look at John chapter 5, verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill, seeking all the more to kill him being Jesus. The Jews were seeking to all the more to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking the sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So how does John understand the term son of God? How did the Jews understand the term son of God? Did they understand it like Arian, like the Arians, like Arius? Oh, Jesus is the Son of God. That must mean he was created and he's a lesser deity. He's a second God and he's lesser than God the Father. That's not how they understood that term. When Jesus says, I am the Son of God, he is my Father, I am his only begotten Son, the Jews, both the author of the Bible and the opponents of the Bible, all understood he's saying he is exactly equal with God. That's why they crucified him. What was Jesus' charge? Do you remember what the high priest charged him with? blasphemy. They charged him with blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God. The term son of God is not a term that means Jesus is less than God or was created by God. It's a term that means he is equal with God. So we saw point number one, Jesus is one person with two natures. Point number two, that human nature is fully, perfectly human. Point number three, that divine nature is fully, perfectly divine. Jesus Christ, in other words, if you want me to put it simply, what did we study over the last four weeks? Jesus Christ truly is the God-man. The God-man. So let us end as we began by quoting another great Reformed theologian, this time a man named John Owen. And while John Owen in his book, The Glory of Christ, was remarking on the Incarnation, He said these words, which I think are a fitting end to our entire sermon series. Hear these words from John Owen. The glory of Christ's humiliation was the result of the divine wisdom of the Father as well as of the love of the Son. It was the highest evidence of God's loving care towards his sinful human creatures. What can be compared to it? The incarnation is the glory of Christianity. It is the life-giving power of all evangelical truth.